Hello, my name is Jim Velez, and I feel honored that you have chosen to listen to The Road to Forgiveness. I have counseled for over 32 years and have taught counseling and psychology classes for over 22 years on the college and university level. Some people have experienced incredible pain and loss. They rehearse the past over and over again and relive the injustice, sometimes on a daily basis. In doing so, they become slaves to the very person who hurt them. How can this change? How can you find the freedom that comes with forgiveness? And what is forgiveness? And where can people get stuck in the process? That's what this podcast is all about. In show number six, we're going to talk about the bitterness tree. The second emotional quagmire that we can experience is that of bitterness. Let me tell you something that happened to me when I was a kid. I was riding my bike one day and I flipped and suddenly I fell off the bike and my knees skidded about two and a half feet on the sidewalk. And when I got up and looked down at my knee, it was raw. It was bleeding. It looked like raw hamburger. It had dirt and gravel and all that stuff in it. So I limped home. And when I got home, I said, Mom, Mom, help me. And she looked at my knee and she said, go into the bathroom and wash it. Well, I was all of eight years of age. So I went into the bathroom and like any eight-year-old boy would do, I washed above the wound, I washed beneath the wound, but I certainly didn't put anything on the wound. And I limped back to my mom and she looked at it and she said, you need to follow me. And she marched me into the bathroom, sat me on the tub, and my mom turned around and she did something at the sink with the washcloth and when she turned back around to me at the tub, these two teeth, had grown two inches and venom was dripping from them. And she said, Jimmy, give me your knee. And she put her hand underneath my knee and then she took that washcloth and she put it right on top of that raw wound. And she began to scrub and to rub all of that. And I heard gravel hitting the bathtub. And I said, ouch, mom, stop, please stop. And she looked at me and said, if I don't do this, it will get worse. How could it possibly get any worse than what it was? She rinsed the washcloth off and then she went back on my knee again and just kept scrubbing on it. I was in dire pain. And then when she was finished, I said, oh goodness, it's over. But then she opened the medicine cabinet. Now in my day, in the medicine cabinet, there were little brown bottles that lived in there. And they had strange names on them like methylate and mercurochrome and iodine. And my mom didn't think I could read very well, but when I saw her turn the bottle, I saw on the back it said, brood in hell. It was a concoction of gasoline and kerosene and pure alcohol and salt, anything that would burn. And when you took the, the top off, there was a little white applicator that was attached to it. The only way to administer the medicine was to rub it in. And I think that's where that phrase comes from. We're going to rub it in. <laughs> but it was painful. She put that on my leg and now my leg was on fire. Now I was blowing on it. I was doing everything I could because it was incredibly painful to me. And just at the point where I was about to hyperventilate, she stopped. And then she got out the Band-Aid and she put the Band-Aid on it. Well, I learned some valuable lessons when I was a child about wounds. I learned, number one, that wounds hurt. 
I learned, number two, that I didn't want to look at the wound. I learned that I didn't want to touch it. The fourth lesson I learned was that I didn't want anyone else to touch it. Fifth lesson was when someone offered to help me, it was painful. I felt the cure was worse than the original wound. And the seventh lesson, I felt incredible relief when it was over. I learned that as a child. And yet as I've worked with people for years, over 25 years, and trying to help them with the wounds and the pain and the things that have hit their life and impacted their life in profound ways, I found that these same lessons apply. Wounds do hurt. People don't want to look at them. They don't want to touch them. They don't want anyone else to touch them. And if you do offer, it can be painful. And sometimes it seems like the cure is worse than the original wound. But what do you do when a marriage skids to a halt, when lives are shredded and a wife or husband experiences the painful realities of an unwanted divorce? What soap can be used to clean the devastating loss of innocence, a brutal rape or murder, tragic and senseless acts of violence that shake the very foundations of their lives? What do people do when they find a corporation that they've loyally served and that corporation has robbed them of their retirement? How do wives and husbands deal with the searing rejection that comes with the knowledge of betrayal due to an affair, causing their world to collapse? And what does a mother do when she leaves the delivery room empty-handed, struggling with how to put the pieces of her life back together again? What does a teenager do with the pain of struggling with an absentee father or the profound sense of rejection of not feeling wanted when an adopted child agonizes over why or how someone could give him or her away? What washcloth or bottle contains the solution to salve the hurt and to cause the pain to go away? I've watched many struggle with their wounds at such a profound level that relief seemed nowhere in sight. I've seen the emotional Richter scales subside in people's lives, leaving only the tragic remains of broken dreams. And I've seen anger. I've seen anger ooze from these wounds. Anger that clouds their soul and darkens their sky and forms iron bars of resentment, leaving them imprisoned in an internal concentration camp. Properly cleaning emotional wounds is critically important. And the consequences of not doing so are legion. What happens when physical wounds aren't dealt with properly? Well, there'll be swelling, there'll be redness, there'll be tenderness. It impacts the entire body and the infected person starts to compensate for the injury and then protects themselves from further pain. The problem with that is that if it continues to go on, it can create something even worse than the wound itself, and that's gangrene. Emotional wounds need the same care and attention as a physical wound. If they are not diagnosed properly and dealt with effectively, emotional infections can be the result. And once infected, these wounds create a poison that can literally transform the personality. 
This deep-seated form of anger has been called by a number of different words. Some have called it institutionalized anger, harbored hurt, corrosive anger, a wounded spirit, emotional cancer, the cocaine of the emotions, carcinoma of the spirit, calcified resentment, and acid of the soul. But the Bible refers to it with even another word. It calls it bitterness when it's deeper than anger. What is bitterness? Someone has said that the greatest damage of an offense, often greater than the offense itself, is that it destroys my freedom to be me. For I find myself involuntarily dominated by the inner rage and resentment, a type of a spiritual poison which permeates through all my being. I hate the offender for what he or she has done to me, but in the very hatred of the other, I allow them to become the Lord and master of my life. Max Licato says there is a dangerous point at which anger ceases to be an emotion and becomes a driving force. And someone else has said that injuries can take on a life of their own, so even when the wound seems all but healed, the pain and the memories linger, sometimes for days, sometimes for months, sometimes for generations. There are a number of African proverbs that seem to cut right to the chase. And one of the African proverbs that I enjoy is one that says, only people who have open sores know that flies have teeth. And there's another African proverb that says, pus never gets lost in the body. If something isn't dealt with, it doesn't just go away. Hebrews 12:15 says this, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. What is that verse actually saying? It says, look diligently, be careful, lest any man fail of the grace that God has provided, lest a root of bitterness spring up, it's alive, and it troubles the person that it's in. And not only does it stay in the person, but it spills over onto other people, thereby many are defiled. So what are the characteristics of a bitter person? I am deeply indebted to T.S. Rendell, a professor of mine who wrote an article on the bitterness tree, describing Joseph's brothers and the bitterness they had in their heart toward Joseph. So the first five characteristics I've taken from his article on the bitterness tree. I've added five more characteristics to those original five from Dr. Rendell. A bitter person finds it impossible to speak peaceably with others in their family. What does that mean? It means that people who are in emotional pain and people who are bitter kick anyone who gets close to the wound. It's their primary defense mechanism. Let me give you an example. If we were out hiking and climbing up in the woods and you fell off some rocks and had a tragic accident where you broke your leg and it was a compound fracture where the bone is actually protruding from the leg 
and I came to you and I said, listen, we've got to get you to the hospital. Just hold on there for just a minute. I've got some guys coming. We've got a stretcher. We're going to move you and get you to the hospital. But we can't move you in this condition. I've got to somehow just get that bone back through your pant leg and line it back up and then we'll put some bark around it and then we'll duct tape it and hold it and immobilize it so we can move you. And I said, listen, all you have to do is just wait uh, because it's only going to take me about 30 seconds to pull that bone back through there and line it up. And so as I reach down for your right ankle to do that, I only have one question. What are you going to do with your left foot? Well, you're going to kick me. Why? Don't you know I'm trying to help you? Sure you do. It's not a question of knowledge. It's a question of pain. And people who are in pain kick the very people who are closest to them and who are trying to help. The second characteristic of a bitter person is that they speak with barbed and cutting words, hurting others deeply. Words to a person who is bitter are like weapons. They're honed to perfection. They wield those words like knives. A critical and a caustic spirit becomes their ally. And the slightest injury becomes major, and they struggle in maintaining relationships. Bitter people are people who are wrapped in barbed wire. The third characteristic of a bitter person is that a bitter person uses language characterized by hostility and suspicion. You see, hostility and suspicion consume tremendous amounts of emotional energy. A person may feel safe, but they are very isolated and alone. It's like feeding a dog at mealtime and you reach down to, to grab his bowl because you want to put something else in it. And as soon as you get down there, the dog just starts to growl. Well, that growling serves a purpose. It gives the dog a sense of control. But the dog who is growling cannot eat while he's growling. So literally, at that point, when he is growling, he's starving to death. A bitter person has emotional guard dogs constantly on duty. The fourth characteristic of a bitter person is that a bitter person criticizes what others say or do. By pointing out others' faults, they don't have to focus on their own. Criticism gives justification. It keeps accusers at bay. The easiest way to build themselves up, cut other people down. And that's the life of a bitter person. The fifth characteristic is that a bitter person disrespects others and is unthankful. A bitter person has a difficult time showing respect for others, and it is especially evident in their inability to show gratitude. You see, gratitude says, I have a need, and if I have a need, then I'm weak. If I'm weak, then I could be vulnerable. If I'm vulnerable, I could get hurt. If I could get hurt, I can feel pain. So don't show gratitude. I don't want to feel pain, so don't be weak, don't be needy. Bitterness robs them of joy and in turn, thankfulness. The sixth characteristic is that a bitter person rehearses the past over and over again. 
By rehearsing the past over and over again, their batteries are recharged. With recharged batteries, they can create verbal silver bullets so that they can use these in a moment's notice. Bitter people are not free to enjoy the present, and they certainly can't look forward to the future, so they're locked into the past. The seventh characteristic is that a bitter person twists the motives and intentions of others when they try to come alongside to help. Bitterness twists the heart so that the eye cannot clearly see. The quickest way to defend oneself is to attack another person's motives. That's where the bitter person is coming from. Because to question the motive is to pretend to read the heart, which gives a false sense of power. So if you share something with them, they'll say, I know why you said that. You said that because. And once a bitter person judges you at a motive level, you have no recourse. Judge, jury, and sometimes executioner have already come in. The ability to discern motives becomes a narcotic to a bitter person. They'll tell you why you did something. The eighth characteristic of a bitter person is that a bitter person resists change or help. The longer bitterness remains in the individual, the more embedded it becomes. A small child can get a splinter embedded in their finger and they can come to you and they can say, I want it out, I want it out, help me, help me, help me. And so as they put their finger out there, to have you help them as a parent, you reach for that and instantly they pull their hand back. I want help, but don't touch it. It's a little different for a bitter person. The splinter that they have in their finger serves a purpose for them. It gives them justification and in some cases vindication for their actions and their attitudes and their behaviors. And so they don't want it out. Some people prefer a known hell over an unknown heaven. The ninth characteristic is that a bitter person strives to keep past injuries fresh as though they happened yesterday. They must keep the past alive. Any perceived injustice, whether real or imagined, is retrieved from the memory banks at a moment's notice. And they can recount the event, the players, the motives, the injustices ad infinitum. No one is able to resurrect the past as quickly as those who desperately need it to keep it fresh, to maintain their purpose. Like ghastly ghouls, not content to just sit at a grave, they need to dig the grave up. And it's a resurrection, but not of hope and deliverance, but of pain and tortured memories. The last characteristic of a bitter person is that a bitter person exhibits indifference and numbness toward the hurts they inflict on others. Bitterness is emotional novocaine. Bitter people are insensitive to the hurts they inflict on others. My dentist gives me a feeling when I go to him and he has to fill a cavity, he gives me a feeling of numb and he specifically gives me that feeling so I don't feel another feeling, pain. Perhaps the most painful aspect of living with a bitter person is to see their ap apparent indifference to other people's feelings. 
Words strike like a snake. Venom can flow, but the bitter person is unmoved, even indifferent to how others have received it. So what is bitterness? Anger plus unresolved grief or loss equals bitterness. Once a person is angry and that anger is embedded in their life, it never just stays as anger. It will change over time. And if they're unable to resolve a grief or loss issue over time, it can distill and morph into bitterness. We're headed to an island off the coast of the state of Washington. The island is called Friday Harbor. There's something very interesting on that island that I want you to see. this trail, you're going to see simple grave sites marking a pathway to something at the end of this trail that you're going to find quite interesting. This is the John S. McMillan Mausoleum. It was constructed by John McMillan, who was the president and owner of the Roche Harbor Lime and Cement Company in 1930 and completed in 1936 at the cost of $30,000, which was a tremendous amount of money at the very beginning of the Depression. The columns are the exact size of the columns in Solomon's Temple. Everything he did in constructing this mausoleum has symbolic significance. John McMillan was extremely proud of his family. Family was very important to him. So when he constructed this mausoleum, he built a limestone table in the middle. And around that limestone table were chairs that represented each member of the family. Those chairs were also crypts that hold their ashes to this day. And it represented the family sitting together in the hereafter. Seated at the table are his children, Paul McMillan, Fred, John himself, his wife Luella. John Jr. resides here, as well as Dorothy, their daughter. On the back of John McMillan's chair, he lists his educational accomplishments and everything that was important to him that he was a lawyer, that he was a 32nd degree Mason, he was a Knight Templar, a noble of the Mystic Shrine, that he was a Methodist, and that he was a Republican. But there's another story here. Something is missing. This column that's broken is not this way because of vandalism or decay. John McMillan constructed it like this. 
Now the local tourist brochure will say that this broken column represents the unfinished state of man's work, when the string of life is broken. But the locals here will tell you a different story altogether. You see, John had another son, and that son married outside of the Methodist religion. And when he did so, John McMillan was furious. So he constructed this in such a way as to send a message to that son that you started out in the family, but the column will never be finished. And if you'll notice, there is no chair at the table for that son. So I ask you this question, is this a monument to his family or is it a monument to his bitterness? Hebrews 12:15 says, don't fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, thereby many are defiled. That's quite a memorial, isn't it? So what is bitterness? Bitterness is an attitude that is created within us when we blame circumstances or people for our situation. Bitterness is an atmosphere produced within us when we scan our lives and decide that we have not been given a fair deal. And lastly, bitterness is a mood that exists when we question the scales of justice and righteousness in God's hand. What is it? It's a hurt that refuses to be soothed. Bitterness is a hurt that refuses to be healed. And it's a hurt that refuses to be forgotten. Many times people will come to me with anger concerns. And I draw a little apple tree for them and I say, you know, let me put something here on this tree and see how much fruit is here in your life. And so I'll draw the word anger and anger manifests itself in many different ways and many different fruits on that tree. Anger is an external outburst. It's a secondary emotion. In other words, something usually triggers the anger. And anger can manifest itself as a fruit in clamor. And clamor is an old English word which means yelling and crying and screaming. And another fruit that can manifest itself in anger is abusive speech. Stupid, idiot, jerk, dummy, fool. And that in turn can manifest yet another fruit, which is malice. And malice is a physical attempt to do harm. If you take malice and turn it inward in an extreme form, it could lead to suicide. If you take malice and turn it outward in an extreme form, it could lead to murder. But malice can also manifest itself in pushing and shoving and restraining. But in those extreme forms, it's pretty powerful and pretty detrimental. So the question is, is it fruit or is it in the root system? The Bible says bitterness is a root, harbored hurt, deep resentment. And out of that harbored hurt and deep resentment, a person can experience fierce indignation or wrath, and that explodes into what you can visibly see as anger. 
And many people struggle with anger, but many people struggle with bitterness, something that's deeper than anger. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So what I just shared with you was a scripture verse. Either Paul was telling us, here's a number of things that we need to have removed from our life. Or he was saying, if you don't deal with bitterness, it can grow into something far worse. Well, what do you know about roots? Let's look at that for just a moment. Roots are hidden. They're out of sight beneath the surface. Roots are buried, yet very much alive. Roots generally are twisted and gnarled. Roots are firmly entrenched, resisting removal and change. Roots grow and feed on the soil in which they are planted. Roots strengthen and support the entire tree. And fruits are largely determined by the roots. So is it a question of fruit or is it a question of root? There is something that is deeper than anger. Years ago, I had a client who struggled with bitterness and she was rather artistic. And so I said, well, why don't you draw what that bitterness is like for you? And this is what she came back with. A picture of a barren landscape with a tree with no leaves on it, no fruit on it, nothing that speaks of life. There was only one flower that had any color on it at the bottom of the tree. And she said, Jim, that flower represents my only hope. Jim, you're that flower right now. And right in front of that flower, there's a little treasure chest that's open. The lock has been broken. And she said, there's absolutely no treasure in it. I feel as though I've been robbed. So the entire landscape, everything that she put in that picture, apart from a flower, looks like a landscape that's been poisoned, where there's no life at all. Beverly Flanagan said, it is one thing to have your heart broken, it is quite another to have it poisoned. Broken hearts repair, poisoned hearts shrivel and die. So powerful. What are the stages of bitterness? I believe that there's three different phases or stages of bitterness that a person can be in. The first stage is what I call reactive bitterness. Reactive bitterness is normally short-lived and it's usually due to a painful event that needs to be grieved and processed in a healthy way. Someone experienced something that was incredibly difficult and painful for them and perhaps after struggling with it for a year, maybe two years, maybe even up to three, they're able to release it and to let it go. But it's a reaction to something. They're finally able to let it go. But if they've not been able to deal with bitterness in a reactive stage, then it can move to resistant bitterness. And this is normally the result of, of a profoundly painful experience. And if it is not dealt with effectively, this stage opens the door to the third and the most critical stage. And that is rigid bitterness. Because when it gets to this point, 
It's been entrenched for such a long period of time, it's literally infected the entire personality. It's become a way of life. And as Max Lucado said, it has become the cocaine of the emotions. The theme of bitterness is used over and over again in Hollywood and classic English literature. Ben-Hur by Lou Wallace is a classic story of a man who was caught in the grip of bitterness toward his best friend Masala who condemned him to the galley and of his fight to free himself from the inner poison that he had. Shylock in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, a man who wanted a pound of another man's flesh, is a very powerful image of a man who's caught in the grip of bitterness. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, the story of Captain Ahab who lost his leg through this gigantic white whale and of Captain Ahab's desire to go after this whale and to go through the migration patterns that whales follow so that he could hunt him down and seek out his revenge and his whole life is driven for that one purpose. Melville says in his book, writing about Captain Ahab and that physical injury, he said it forced him when he had that injury to turn home. For long months and days and weeks, Ahab and anguish lay stretched together in one hammock. Then it was that his torn body and gashed soul bled into one another and so interfusing made him mad. There again, Herman Melville said, a physical wound moved and morphed into something deeper than anger. And Ahab was caught in the grip of bitterness. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, a man who's bitter against humanity. The Count of Monte Cristo, a story of bitterness and revenge. And almost any movie with Clint Eastwood. How do you help someone who is bitter? The first question you have to ask yourself is this, does this person want help? Many people who are bitter don't feel they have a problem, and that's the problem. They don't have one. So you are the one who tries to convince them that they have the problem, but they aren't willing to own it. Once they realize they have an emotional poison that is eating them alive, then they can seriously look at resolving the problem. Years ago, I had someone list the advantages and disadvantages of bitterness. And often, a person will say to me, well, there are no advantages. And I said, well, certainly there are. If there were no advantages, you wouldn't hold on to it for year after year after year. There's got to be some advantages. And so this gentleman listed the advantages and disadvantages, and he said, it insulates me from hurt in the same way that a wetsuit keeps you warm. The disadvantage, it prevents me from having to be open, honest, and caring. The advantage, it keeps my striking distance shorter. The disadvantage, it's an impenetrable defense. It won't let anyone in. The advantage, I'm not alone when I get hurt. I become reciprocal. The disadvantage, it destroys the thing I truly want. The advantage, it allows me to focus on the attacker rather than just the attack. 
the disadvantage, it blocks my relationship with God. It is a seemingly undrainable reserve of weaponry for any occasion or assault. And the disadvantage is that it exhausts my resources. I can't see or smell the beauty of the rose because I'm stuck on the thorn. I looked at his list of advantages and disadvantages, and I noticed a pattern there, and so I highlighted some words, and I went back over them with him. And if you look at the words he uses, striking distance, impenetrable defense, destroys, attacker, attack, reserve of weaponry, assault. Where are these kinds of words used? They're used in war. So a man who is bitter is literally at war, but he initially is at war with himself. If a person is ever going to deal with the issue of bitterness, the disadvantages must far outweigh the advantages. Because once they start listing the advantages, hopefully the disadvantages that it's confining, it's isolating, no one shares your flavor of bitterness, you're alone, it's exhausting, I have a black belt in sarcasm, I'm very critical, I'm easy to blame, I'm argumentative, I become a bully, it cripples my empathy, I'm never satisfied, I'm hungry for another's offense to sustain my bitterness, I'm skating uphill, I can't experience happiness to the fullest. Once the list of disadvantages starts to far outweigh the advantages, then there can be movement, then they can change because they realize it's tearing them apart, it's eating them alive. But until that point comes, they will hold on to their bitterness. You see, bitterness is like a stick match. You strike the stick match, the flame of bitterness is supported and fed by the hurt. But the flame consumes the very one who supports it. So as you watch the flame continue to burn, it consumes the very one who's bitter. Are you bitter? Have you been holding on to some injustice for years? <sighs> Why don't you let it go? Why don't you come to the place where you'll say, this is killing me. This is killing me. Don't fail of the grace of God who has given you a way out. Some dates are dates that you never forget. June 4th is that date for me. On June 4th, my two children, Rebecca, who was six, and Jonathan, who was five, were playing in a wading pool in my front yard. They were giggling like little kids do, and the wading pool was only 10 feet from our front door. When about 100 yards away, teenage girl who was 19 years old, joy riding with her friends, driving without a license, turned the corner and she panicked and took her hands off the wheel and stomped on the accelerator and screaming and yelling, the car careened out of control and it went across a neighbor's yard and smashed a fence and went right through that wading pool. I killed my daughter, drug Rebecca's body out to the road and the car stopped in a ditch across the road. 
It's a watershed event that occurs in a person's life that forever changes the way they view their world. The sleepless nights, the pain was incredible. And I remember three months later finding out that the judge gave the girl a $750 fine and 18 months probation. That was very difficult for me as a dad. And I want you to know that I struggled with bitterness for about a year. I wrestled with it. I wanted to take someone out. I didn't blame the girl as much as I put the responsibility on her father because he gave her the keys to the car. And I wrestled with wanting to do something. I had to get back. I was the man of the house. I had to somehow protect my family. I had to do something. And night after night after night, I would wake up in the morning and my pillow was sopping wet with stress and wrestling with what am I going to do? What am I going to do? My wife had a miscarriage six months later. And three months after that, we found out she would never be able to have children again. So time after time, I was just hit and then hit again and hit again. And bitterness crept into my wound. And it saturated everything about me. It consumed incredible amounts of emotional energy in my life. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to experience the pain I was feeling. I didn't want to hurt the girl, but I certainly blamed her father for giving her the keys to the car. And so I thought of ways, what am I going to do? How am I going to get back at this person who has so destroyed my life and my family? I did that for a year. Night after night, I would wake up in the morning and my pillow was wet from stress, thinking of how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? And finally, I got to the place where I was desperate. After a year of struggling with this, I said, God, if you don't help me, if you don't free me from this, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. And I just finished reading Genesis 49, and so I opened my Bible to Genesis 50, and I was desperate. And as I began to read Genesis 50, I read the story of where Jacob had died and his brothers and Jacob's sons rather were upset and they said, uh oh, now Joseph's going to get us because dad is gone. And so the, his brothers concocted yet another lie and they came to Joseph and out of fear that he would hurt them. And they said, Joseph, the dad said before he died not to do anything to us and to, to not harm us in any way. And, and I'll never forget Joseph's response. Joseph looked at his brothers and he said this, Am I in the place of God? Now I could fill in the rest of that statement, that I have the power of life and death over you. That's what he was saying. Am I in the place of God? And God activated that word to my heart and I saw what my bitterness was doing. I was actually assuming a prerogative of deity. I wanted to take somebody's life. That is not a prerogative 
that I have to choose that belongs to God and to God alone. And I bowed my head on that day and I wept and I said, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me for assuming a prerogative of deity. You have the right to life and death. It's not mine. And I wept. And from that day, I have not struggled with bitterness. But it was not an easy journey. It took me a year to get to that place because the pain was so deep. For further information, including charts, posters, video clips, or if you would like a DVD of this entire series, go to theroadtoforgiveness.com.